Peaceful Parenting by Stefan Molyneux, Part 12. Imposing Standards. If you lie, honest people don't want to spend time with you. If you lie, you can't reasonably expect everyone else to be bound by honesty. Aggressive parents punish children for lying. Peaceful parenting recreates adult situations in a peaceful and manageable way. If your son lies to you, tell him that you don't like that behavior. If your son repeatedly cheats at a board game, stop playing that game with him. That's what happens in the real world. If you cheat at tennis, people don't want to play with you. Remind your son that If he keeps lying to you, you won't want to have conversations with him. And you will feel no requirement to tell the truth to him in the future. That's what happens in the real world. If good people think you're a liar, they won't have conversations with you. If bad people see that you are a liar, they will surround you with falsehoods that benefit them. You see the pattern? Childhood is a dress rehearsal for adulthood. In a dress rehearsal for a play, you can mess up the lines or be in the wrong place, and it's not a disaster. It's just preparation. As a peaceful parent, you are preparing your child for adulthood. In adulthood, Bad behavior drives good people away and draws bad people closer. If your child lies, cheats, steals, and all children will always experiment with all of these habits and behaviors, it's guaranteed, don't get too upset, it's perfectly natural, it's perfectly healthy, then your job as a parent is to reproduce in a microcosm how these behaviors will affect your child as an adult. If your daughter promises not to eat candy, then sneaks candy. That's natural, inevitable, healthy even. Aggressive parents will punish her. Peaceful parents will ask her if they are now able to steal her candy or belongings. The candy was ours. We paid for it and you stole it. You took something that we owned without our permission and against our wishes and against what you promised. This doesn't make you a bad person. We've all seen those videos where monkeys steal something from a tourist. You're just experimenting with how to get what you want. And I respect that. I have no problem with that. But if I take something of yours, is that wrong? If I take your candy or your toys or your favorite t-shirt, Should I do that? No, I agree. I totally agree. I shouldn't take your stuff without your permission, right? I mean, you wouldn't be happy if you came home from playing at a friend's house and found that we were selling all your stuff on the front lawn, right? I'm not saying we would ever do that in a million years, but you wouldn't like it at all, right? No, I would hate it, right? You need to know that no one's going to take your stuff without your permission. Well, we're the same way. I need to know that no one's going to take my stuff without permission. 
you don't want to have one rule for yourself and the total opposite rule for everyone else. No one is that special, right? I mean, you wouldn't like playing a board game where one kid had the opposite rules from everyone else. No, I wouldn't. So, you tried something, which is stealing. And I get it. Every kid does it. I did it too. But you know that it's upsetting to me, just as me stealing from you would be upsetting to you. And I know that you care about me, that you love me, and you wouldn't want to upset me for the sake of a few pieces of candy. And you wouldn't want me to stop trusting you for the sake of a few pieces of candy, just as I wouldn't want you to stop trusting me by stealing your stuff. Plus, you'll feel pretty good following the rules that you want other people to follow, because it just makes everyone the same. It connects us with people. Does that make sense? Of course it does. <laughs> Moral rules are universal rules, which is why we get to impose them on others. If you come down too heavy on your child for stealing, then you are saying that she has no self-interest in virtue. She has to be good only because other people will make her feel terrible if she is bad. If you try to train your child into being virtuous by making her feel awful for being bad, you are saying that there's no positive benefit to virtue. We should pursue goodness because reason leads to virtue, which leads to happiness. Fearing negative consequences never leads to sustainable behavior. We should exercise not out of a fear of obesity or unattractiveness, but because we enjoy being strong. We enjoy the endorphins, and we accept the fact that the mind and the body are one, and we cannot have a strong mind in a weak body. We should exercise so that we don't live in fear and can think for ourselves. Very few people actually know what their political opinions are. They merely have beliefs as an effect of physical strength or weakness. People who exercise tend to be more pro-free market. People who don't tend to be more pro-socialist. We exercise so that we can think clearly and not be mentally dominated by physical weakness and vulnerability. Trying to change people's behavior by inflicting negative consequences clearly communicates the message that the preferred behavior has no positive consequences. If you stop eating junk food, you end up enjoying healthy food even more than you loved the junk food. If you start exercising, you will end up enjoying exercise more than being a couch potato. If you are virtuous, you end up enjoying virtue far more than you enjoyed vice. Punishing people for non-virtuous actions compels them to avoid badness rather than pursue virtue. A poor person can get your money by appealing to your charity or robbing you with a gun. 
If he robs you with a gun, he is explicitly stating that he is undeserving of charity, that you would never choose to give him your money based upon his virtuous need. If you hit and punish children for being bad, then you are expressly telling them that they have no good reasons to choose virtue. Also, they will never internalize rules that are painfully inflicted by you from the outside. We cannot be loved without being virtuous. And love is the greatest thing in life. Love is our involuntary response to virtue if we are virtuous. Not only can we never be loved without being virtuous, we can never fall in love either. Falling in love and being in love are these not the greatest things in the universe? And they're only achievable through virtue. Of course you can disapprove of your children if they act badly. The important thing is to be honest with your children and not fake positive emotions that you don't feel. But loving them and being loved by them is the greatest glory in life. Who would trade all that for a few pieces of candy? Peaceful parenting and timeouts. It certainly was an improvement when people got thrown in jail rather than families and clans taking endless multi-generational violent retribution on each other for assaults and murders. Defamation laws are an improvement over duels, wrangling in court, beats, pistols at dawn. We should, however, never imagine that we are at the end of our improvements. Think about this in your life. Are you ever perfectly and permanently satisfied? Do you ever think? That you have enough money, time, love, prestige? What about technology? Did you ever upgrade your very first cell phone or computer? Do you like having a car with newer features? We are never done in terms of improvements. Horses are better than walking. Cars are better than horses. Airplanes are better than cars, and whatever comes next will be better than airplanes. In a hot climate, a breeze is better than still air. Fanning yourself is even better. Being fanned by someone else is even better. An electric fan is even better, and air conditioning is even better still. It's better to have a dishwasher than wash dishes by hand. I'm sure it will be even better to have a robot who cleans all your dishes without you having to lift a finger. It is a sad fact of humanity that moral improvements are 
unsteady, bitterly fought, and very hard won. But the moment the achievement is entrenched, hardly anyone thinks of further moral improvements. Serfdom was better than slavery. Income tax is better than both. But then we just kind of stop and imagine that no further moral improvements can be made and we have reached the ultimate apex of our ethical glories. So, I grant you. Timeouts are better than beatings. But so what? The iPhone 6 was better than the iPhone 5. Does that mean that no one ever upgrades beyond the iPhone 6? Continuous improvement, baby. That's the name of the game called humanity. What is a timeout? A timeout is a form of parental discipline that generally involves giving one or two warnings to a child, then picking up the child and sitting him in a corner or on some stairs, generally for one minute for each of his years of age. How does it work in practice? Well, if a child disobeys you or does something harmful or dangerous, you give the child a warning or two. If the child continues his behavior, you pick up the child and place him on a naughty chair or naughty stair. The child then has to stay on that stair for each year of his age. A three-year-old stays for three minutes, a six-year-old for six minutes, and so on. If the child tries to leave before his time is up, the parent picks him up and returns him to the stair without looking at or interacting with the child until his time is up. After the time is up, the parent gives the child a hug, explains the time out, asks for an apology, and then the day continues as before, as long as the child apologizes. This technique avoids striking the child or insulting the child, and so it is certainly a step forward. But so what? We keep going until we achieve perfect consistency with principles. And then we keep aiming at perfect consistency with principles, since the goal is impossible. The fundamental moral axiom of peaceful parenting is the non-aggression principle. You must never initiate the use of force against others. Property rights are embedded in the non-aggression principle. We own ourselves and should not be violently aggressed against, which means that property should never be violently aggressed against, whether it is our own bodies or our external property. It's pretty hard for parents to claim a self-defense principle with regards to their children, especially when they are very young. But of course, theoretically, if a parent is being attacked by an angry teenager, violence in self-defense is morally acceptable with the caveat that the violent teenager was raised by the parent being attacked and therefore the parent holds infinitely more responsibility for the crisis than a stranger would. 
when it comes to parenting, morality requires that we compare our proposed actions to the ideal standard of the non-aggression principle and a respect for property rights. Striking a child is a violation of the non-aggression principle. We can understand this without much explanation. Exercising coercive will over another human being is a violation of the non-aggression principle. If you get into a taxi cab and the cab driver somehow locks the door so you cannot get out and drives off in some unknown direction, that is called kidnapping. He is exercising coercive control over your body in that he is driving you someplace you do not want to go and which you have not agreed to. If you're on a date and the girl wants to leave your apartment and you bar her from exiting, you are unlawfully confining her, and that is immoral. You are exercising coercive control over her mind and body in that you are keeping her in a place that she does not want to stay. This is all pretty elementary, right? Verbal abusers are invading and taking over parts of their child's brain against the will of the child. When they cannot leave or escape, by inflicting negative language that harms the child's self-interest. We have laws against defamation, false negative language that harms someone else's self-interest, because it is a form of theft. If you falsely claim that a restaurant served you a live rat, and that restaurant then loses a million dollars, then you have stolen a million dollars from the restaurant owners. If a brilliant graduate student asks a professor to write a letter of recommendation, and the professor falsely claims that the student is stupid and lazy, and the student then loses out on a career opportunity, the student can sue the professor for lost income. Do you see the connection? It is not verbal abuse to tell your child she's a bad singer, if your child is, in fact, a bad singer. Truth is the ultimate defense against defamation. However, if you tell your child that she is mean, selfish, vicious, greedy, ungrateful, and so on, then you are harming your child when your child has no choice but to submit to your defamation of her character. Also, if I hire a chef, give that chef ingredients, and tell that chef what to cook, and she cooks well, can I then sue my chef if my restaurant fails? Of course not. I am in control, so I am responsible for what my chef does. Does verbal abuse harm your child's future economic interests? Of course it does. 
children who are verbally abused will end up, on average, earning far less for the simple reason that they are too frightened and broken to stand up for themselves and negotiate for what they are actually worth. Even adult workplace bullying costs its victims money. Abusive employers are regularly sued to recoup these costs. The defamation inflicted by verbally abusive parents costs their children hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars over the lifetimes of the children. Children who are verbally abused also have a much tougher time falling in love or receiving love, which means that they lose out on the social, emotional, health, and economic benefits of a stable pair bond with another quality person. This loneliness or lack of connection has worse health effects than smoking. Again, measurable harm based on defamation. Verbally abusive parents steal their children's self-respect, crippling them socially, emotionally, and economically, often for life. It is a violation of the non-aggression principle. Okay. So, timeouts. When you put your child in a timeout, are you exercising coercive control over that child's body? Of course you are. You are physically picking up the child, placing the child in a place he does not want to be, and then returning him to that place when he tries to escape. You are overriding your child's self-ownership with coercive control. One central test of whether an action conforms to peaceful parenting is, would this be acceptable or legal to do to adults? If you are a boss and an employee is not listening to you or doing something against your wishes, can you physically pick up that employee and sit her in a corner of the cafeteria in a naughty chair? If she gets up, can you then manhandle her back down into a sitting position? Of course not. That would be physical aggression punishable by prison time. I mean, in the modern workplace, even off-color jokes and harsh words can create what is legally called a toxic work environment, and people can sue bosses who say inappropriate things for millions of dollars. Does verbally abusing children also create a toxic environment? Of course it does. Except the children cannot quit and sue. Not convinced? All right. Imagine trying this with your wife. Imagine that you are telling your wife what to do, but she disagrees with you, argues back, and keeps on doing whatever she's doing. Can you pick her up and force her down into a chair in her naughty corner? Don't even try. 
if you tell your wife to be careful driving, but she dings the car, can you force her to sit in the back seat and think about what she has done for, say, 45 minutes if she is 45 years old? If she tries to get out of the car, can you force her back in? What if you only let her back into the house after she apologizes, not only for dinging the car, but for being disobedient and not agreeing with everything you said? you got to be kidding! You would never do this to a spouse or a boss or a policeman or a teacher or a priest or an employee or a retail worker or a parking attendant or any other adult, for that matter. Why not? Why wouldn't you manhandle someone and force her into a seated position for half an hour if she did something you thought was wrong? We all know why. Not only because it is illegal, but because it would be weird and wrong and aggressive and coercive. You do realize that if you are in public, and try to wrestle someone down into some kind of sitting position, she could be justified in using significant force to defend herself. She could punch you, pepper spray you, taser you perhaps. I'm no lawyer, of course, but I'm pretty sure that if you grab someone by the shoulders and try to force her down into a submissive position, she could get pretty aggressive pushing back against you. So... Why do we allow this aggression against children while forbidding it against adults? It can't be because children don't respond to reason. Because then we would change the laws to say that you could physically manhandle anyone who wasn't responding to reason, right? No. We are not allowed to manhandle others whether or not they listen to reason. Also, if someone is incapable of listening to reason, does that mean that we can use physical aggression against him? If someone is having an anxiety attack, do we get to wrestle her to the ground and confine her? Nope. It is impossible to reason with someone who does not speak our language. Can we then force him into a sitting position if he doesn't do what we want? If your child is old enough to listen to instructions, he is old enough to reason with. What are you allowed to do to adults if they disagree with you? Well, you are allowed to disapprove of them. If someone makes an argument that is offensive to you, you can't just go and beat him up, at least technically or legally. But what are you allowed to do? You are allowed to walk away. You are allowed to express your upset and disapproval. You are allowed to be angry at him. You are allowed to tell others that you are angry. And you are also allowed to make counter-arguments. You see? It's pretty universal. You are allowed to use your words but not your fists. Sibling aggression. If your daughter is building something with blocks and your son knocks it over, does he deserve a timeout? 
Nope. It is profoundly anti-rational to create an imaginary answer to a very real question. We look at primitive tribes who say that a volcano erupts because the fire god is angry with some bemusement and possibly contempt at their superstitious approach to natural events. Your son knocks over your daughter's blocks. The essential question is, why? Why does he knock over what she has built? Peaceful parents ask that question because they are honest and don't make up pretend answers when they don't know something. That's not what aggressive parents do. Aggressive parents create an imaginary devil called badness in the heart and mind of the child and then try to drive out that devil with physical or emotional violence. This is the same as believing that Others act badly because they are demonically possessed, so we need a witch doctor to come in, shake some juju magic, and drive out the demon. It's utter madness, really. Pretending that children who act negatively are possessed by an invisible entity called badness, and that entity has to be driven out by a superstitious ritual called punishment. That is primitive savagery of the lowest kind. The worst tragedy, the tragedy that kept our species in a primitive state for hundreds of thousands of years, is that when you imagine that you have an answer, you immediately stop asking questions. In fact, it's even worse than that. If you believe that a volcano erupts because the fire god is angry, well, not only do you never develop the science of geology, but you end up with an entire priestly class and social structure dedicated to worshipping and placating the fire god. False answers lead to violent cults. Anyone who questions the existence of the fire god or the reasons to obey him well. That person is a heretic who threatens the entire socio-political structure of the tribe and generally comes to a very short, bloody, and brutish end. False answers stagnate the mind, heart, and soul and not only kill moral progress, but make any movements towards Moral progress, virtually suicidal. So, why does your son knock over what your daughter built? What happens if you don't have access to this magical demon called badness? The moment you stop believing in the non-existent fire god, you can actually start to figure out why the volcano erupts. If you continue to believe in the fire god, you 
perform all kinds of ridiculous rituals to appease this imaginary entity, which means that you can't actually move your tribe away and be safe because your rituals give you the illusion that you can control the uncontrollable. If you believe that weird dances can produce rains, you don't invest in tangible irrigation. And so half the population regularly starves to death. If you openly state that you don't think that the weird face-painted witch doctor can actually produce rain by dancing, ah, then you are interfering with his cushy life of jumping around and pretending to provide value. What happens to you then? Well, we all know this one, right? What happens is that the next time that the rains do not come, the witch doctor points at you and says that the entire tribe is being punished because you are an unbeliever, a skeptic, a blasphemer, a heretic. You get tortured, ostracized, or killed. And then everyone goes happily back to giving resources to the witch doctor and pretending that he can control the rain. You understand that expressing any skepticism towards the imaginary devils of the tribe is an extremely dangerous business, right? You understand that if you doubt the existence of this mythical badness that was used to justify endless violent punishments against you as a child, that you are trying to overthrow an aggressive, anti-rational mysticism, a cult that feeds on violence against children. And you will be called a heretic, an unbeliever, an evildoer. And those who do genuine evil against children will summon up the mob, and this could be just your own local family structure, to attack you, right? As always, the only tangible demon is the belief in the demon. The actual badness is punishing children for their imaginary badness. If you take away the devils, the pretend exorcists are simply revealed as evil abusers. They invented the devils in order to mortify the flesh to attack and punish the children. They are the real devils, revealed by questions, by skepticism. So, with this knowledge in hand, why does your son knock over what your daughter has built? The answer is simple. I mean, you value honesty, right? You know the answer. It has nothing to do with his mythical badness. Why did he knock something over? Be honest. Tell the truth. Tell me, why did he do it? The simple answer is, you don't know. That's the truth, right? 
You don't know why he knocked over his sister's blocks. He may not know either. The beginning of wisdom is to call things by their proper names. Why did the volcano erupt? Arr, the fire god is angry! It's not an answer, it's a fantasy, a lie, a manipulation. Why did the volcano erupt? The only honest answer is, we don't know. That is the beginning of knowledge, the beginning of wisdom, the humility of accepting ignorance as the foundation for building knowledge. You don't know why your son knocked over what your daughter had built. And if you punish him, you will never know. Do you understand? Do you see it now? You are sealing both of you up, everyone in the family, in an underground tomb of made-up answers. By pretending to know what you do not know, you are preventing everyone from ever knowing the truth. It is common knowledge that governments punish citizens for the effects of government crimes. Julian Assange, for instance. You punish your son because you don't want to know the truth. Because the truth is unflattering to you. Why did your son knock over what your daughter had built? The honest answer is that it is really your fault. You get angry at him, so you punish him by hurting him verbally or physically. Your son is angry at your daughter, so he punishes her by knocking over her blocks. That is why you don't want to know the truth about why your son did what he did. Your son is just like you. You punish him to avoid knowing that. There could be any number of other reasons why your son knocked over his sister's blocks. Perhaps she is a relatively new addition to the family and he is upset because he gets so little attention. Should he be punished for that? If you get upset at a waiter who brings your food late and never checks on you, should you be punished for that? Perhaps your son has seen other children acting aggressively and he is repeating that behavior. That is still entirely your responsibility, your fault. You are in complete control over who your children spend time with. If you have repeatedly put your son in situations where aggression is modeled, that is entirely on you and your spouse. 
Perhaps your son knocked over your daughter's tower because earlier she tore a page out of his favorite book. Perhaps she is the aggressor and he's just responding. Perhaps he is in some kind of chronic discomfort, a headache or or a gassy stomach, and is in a bad mood because he doesn't know how to verbalize that. Perhaps he misses his mother or his father, who have been less available for some reason. Perhaps he has just learned about death, or that the sun will burn out after a few billion years, and he is going through an existential crisis of some kind. Perhaps he spent time with a family member, an uncle or grandfather perhaps, who is secretly aggressive with him, and he's trying to communicate that in his own way. Perhaps his teacher is aggressive to him or other children, and he is learning it there. Do you see the problem? If you conjure up a devil, pretend it lives within him, and then further pretend that you can drive it out through punishment, you will never learn the truth about what is happening. And the reason you don't want to learn the truth about what is happening is because you are responsible for everything that is happening. You don't want to take responsibility for having complete control over your children's environment. You don't want to take responsibility for any negative behaviors you might have modeled over the months or years. You don't want to have to confront other aggressive people, either adults or children, in your son's environment. You don't want to homeschool him or find a different church or confront your own father if you find out that he has been aggressive with your son, either directly or indirectly. You don't want to take responsibility. You don't want to risk unpleasant confrontations. You don't want to look in the mirror. You want to just blame and attack him. And I understand. I sympathize. We all have these impulses. I know I certainly do. Because it's way easier, right? It's way easier to bury the bodies of your own bad behavior by creating and punishing an imaginary demon called badness in your children. Because it's one or the other. You understand? Either he is bad or you are bad. But hey, You're bigger, right? You can manhandle him. He can't manhandle you. You can force him to sit in a chair. He can't force you to sit in the chair. Am I right? If you punish him, what then? Well, then you don't have to take him out of daycare or find better child care providers, or stay home 
from work or homeschool him or confront aggressive family members, right? And here is the most terrible, awful, horrible, and ironic thing. You punish him for failing virtue. But your very punishment is you failing virtue. You punish him for being irresponsible, but you punish him to avoid your own irresponsibility. You claim that he is the source of the wrongdoing, but you are the real wrongdoer. And you know this. Everybody knows this. Everybody knows what organized crime does to witnesses. You know that you are punishing him rather than asking questions because you already know the answers to those questions. And they don't look at all good on you. You know this. And let's be honest, right? Your son knows this too. If you take a spiral jump deep down into your history, your prehistory, you will exactly remember your own anger, rage, and frustration because you were constantly being punished by people who never asked you questions, never wanted to know, never listened, never gave you a chance. You were forever told to use your words, not force, but you were never given a chance to explain yourself. You were just forcefully punished and never allowed to speak. We punish our children so that they will not speak. Our children know exactly how messed up our societies are. Our schools are. Our families are. And how messed up their own parents are. A man who criticizes a dictator is punished because the dictator cannot handle criticism. The man is precisely punished for his own strength and the dictator's weakness. Your son pushes over some blocks. He is desperately trying to tell you something, to communicate something, to reveal something, to save himself, you, your spouse, your family, and in the long run, your entire society. Out of the mouth of babes, right? Your son opens up an incredible communication 
a potentially life-changing and world-changing conversation. But you hate and fear what he has to say, what it reveals about you and those around you. But you can't punish him without justification because that would make you a very bad person, right? You need to punish him for revealing dysfunction. But you can't be honest about that. So you have to pretend that he is just bad and that badness has to be punished. And you are just helping him and, 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 and saving him and, and, and improving him. And so the cycle continues. And the world continues. Its path to hell itself. Compliance and the teenage years. Most modern parents go through four distinct phases with their children. The first is infancy, where parents submit to the needs of their newborns, not expecting compliance and surrendering their wills to what the baby needs. Then there is toddlerhood, the terrible twos, where a grim battle of egos ensues between the parents and the child. The parents begin imposing discipline and having expectations and working ferociously to begin the process of controlling the child's rebellious spirit. The toddler has learned the word no and regularly defies his parents' wishes. His lower lip thrust out his tiny fists clenched in anger. Babies are never bad. Toddlers often are. Babies are needy, not defiant. Toddlers are defiant, disobedient, rebellious, and their budding wills need to be bent and broken to conform to rigid parental expectations. Babies don't embarrass their parents, but toddlers often do. Babies are not expected to share. Toddlers are shamed and disciplined for refusing to share. Toddlers are often perceived to be the devilish enemies of parental, moral, and social standards. The general idea is that babies are born selfish, but you can't blame them and then turn into toddlers who are wild and oppositional and have to be tamed like wild animals into faltering approximations of civilized human beings. This process of domestication often goes on for two to three years, with much wailing and crying and yelling and fighting and spanking and punishing, until the latency period. Until the latency period from the ages of 5 to 11 or 12, from the end of toddlerhood to the onset of puberty. During this phase, whatever muscles that remain in the child's willpower are atrophied and destroyed by raise your hands to go to the bathroom and confine yourself to your desk, modern school systems. The will of the child goes underground during this period, like Gollum 
waiting and biding its time for reinforcements. The inevitable hormonal armies of puberty. Parents believe that they have won the battle against the sinful, savage nature of their toddlers and civilized them into fairly reasonable and polite little girls and boys. This is false, but seductive. When puberty hits, the subterranean rage and rebellion of the toddler years comes roaring back with a vengeance. Sarcasm, skepticism, anger, disobedience, acting out, drinking, drugs, sexual activity, these all come barreling into the formerly placid household like charging Cossacks. Save for killing them outright. You can't break the will of other people. You can compel compliance through overwhelming force, but for parents, that force always diminishes, while compliance always erodes as the children grow stronger. In the teenage years, the requirements for reproduction cause the child's focus to shift from adult authority, teachers, priests, parents, to peers. The teenager knows that she will find her future mate among her peers, not among her elders. Successful reproduction requires that you seize another teenager, not those in authority. This is, of course, why teenagers want to endlessly hang out with each other and not with their parents. There's nothing wrong with this. This is exactly why we are all here in the first place. However, because most parents resolutely avoided reasoning with their children or use reasoning with the constant threat of punishment behind it, which is just another way of avoiding reasoning, children have never learned what virtue is. They have only learned to comply with threats, aggression, abuse, violence, and bullying. When you conform to an external threat, you do not internalize moral standards. If you give your money to a mugger, you've not learned the virtue of charity. Internalizing moral standards is in the realm of positive economics. Threats and punishment are in the realm of negative economics. Children do their homework because they will be punished if they do not. This only teaches them to take the path of least resistance. It does not instill in them a deep joy of learning. It's truly bizarre to understand that parents put massive pressure on their children for years, as do teachers and priests, and then complain that their teenagers are weirdly susceptible to peer pressure. Society screams at its children, conform to me or else, and then rails against those very same children when they conform to peer pressure. You need to stand up against outside threats and truly think for yourself and not bow down to social pressures, sneer parents at the exact same children that they have threatened and pressured and bullied into abandoning their own reason and complying with 
the aggressive whims of others. Children are mirrors of ourselves. Parents who scorn their children are scorning themselves. If you break a horse through violence and starvation, you can give that broken horse to someone else who can ride it easily. If you break your children through threats and aggression, you have no reason to complain when they succumb to peer pressure. The peers are fitting a key into a lock that you built. Blindly, parents of teenagers try applying the same levels of aggression and punishment that they used when their children were toddlers. But it doesn't work, of course, for the simple fact that the children are no longer toddlers. Parents who send their children to school, even a terrible school, because, well, that's what everyone does, are displaying the basest form of conformity to peer pressure that can be imagined. Parents who hit their children because, well, that's just how you raise kids, are blindly complying to social norms at the expense of their children. How can they then complain when their children blindly comply to social norms at the expense of their parents? Did you circumcise your son? Why? It's not medically necessary produces massive trauma in the baby, and robs him and his partner of an entire lifetime of enhanced sexual pleasure. Well, we did it because that's just what you do. Peer pressure imprinted on your son in the form of direct bodily mutilation of his most sensitive organ. And you Dare to complain that he succumbs to peer pressure? Please. When you bully your children, you are saying very explicitly, you must surrender to and obey those who have the most power over you. Well, when your children become teenagers, it is their peers who have the most power over them. We, as a species, evolved to mate in our teenage years, which required peer acceptance. Our genes care about the future, not the past. Evolutionarily speaking, teenagers don't mate with their parents. They mate with each other. Since prehistory, teenagers have pair-bonded with each other, being taken off the dating market with great rapidity. You had to pick quickly or you wouldn't get to pick at all. Your entire genetic future relies upon peer acceptance and approval. If you please your parents, but not your peers, you have no genetic future. Or, to put it another way, those teenagers who resisted peer pressure did not reproduce and those genes Vanished. Aggressive parents teach their children one thing and one thing only. 
Obey whoever has the most power over you. Parents, when they are little. Peers, when they are teenagers. Aggression against toddlers drives teenagers into the arms of their peers. Peaceful parents teach their children to submit to reason and to empathy. Power is superstition. Reason is science. Superstition is when you give blind external forces power over your own beliefs. Reason is when you study those forces, learn their nature and properties, and then command nature with your knowledge. Nature to be commanded must be obeyed. Commanding the self requires obeying reason. Inflicting punishment replaces reason and empathy with rebellion to authority and conformity to peers. Children don't want to be yelled at, hit, punished, confined. Parents say, I know morality. But it turns out that morality is just what makes you feel bad, what gets you punished. Children don't learn justice, just fear. They don't learn empathy or reciprocity, just pain and obedience. They associate morality with punishment, and then we somehow expect them to love morality without becoming masochists. Can you love someone or Something that hurts you? It's unhealthy to love pain. We try to teach morality through pain and then somehow expect our children to love morality. It's completely insane. And you don't even have to think about it for more than a few moments to realize that. If you punish your children, their peers will punish you right back. If you use fear to teach your children morality, they will grow up to fear morality. If you teach them to bow down to bullies, they will end up perpetually enslaved by the aggressive or becoming bullies themselves. Why? Do we do this to our children? It's blindingly obvious, right? I mean, it's not just me, right? When I put everything that we all know so deeply, so clearly, isn't it embarrassing that this has never been said before? What on earth have philosophers been doing for the past 3,000 years if not talking about this? 
Society is stuffed to the gills with moralists lecturing us all about tolerance and empathy and diversity and racism and sensitivity and openness. Why haven't these millions of moralists ever talked about childhood in this clear and obvious manner? Why do we have endless moral philosophers whining about the trolley problem rather than unpacking the basics in order to protect the children? Well, because our current society only survives on the abuse of children. Change childhood, and you change everything. And the people currently in charge of everything really don't want that. Well, too bad. The people who ran the slave trade didn't like that ending either. The people who subjugated women didn't like their liberation either. The bastards who ran concentration camps hated seeing their prisoners freed. Progress means pissing off evil people. Our only alternative is to stay evil. 